moments ago, I told you how easy it is to make your car sparkle like you again with Johnson's Auto Cleaner. Now it's very important to protect that gleaming finish so it will stay shining. And it's very important that you use Johnson's Auto Wax in order to give your car the surest protection against sun, rain, and road film. With a gleaming coat of Johnson's Wax on your car, whether new or old, it will resist dust and dirt. Car washings will be cut down after your car is Johnson Wax. The polish wears like iron. Keeps your car in such beautiful condition that you will get much more money for it at the time of resale. So go to your dealer right away. Order Johnson's Auto Wax and Cleaner at the special price of 98 cents for the two. Your dealer will give you a can of fine quality black touch-up enamel free with your purchase. If you prefer, your garage or service station will wax your car for you. But don't delay another day. Wax your car the Johnson way. until next Monday night at this same hour on NBC. Remember, NBC. N be sure to specify the genuine Johnson's Auto Wax and Cleaner. NBC. Oh, and NB. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking. Good night. The selection I wished on the moon is from the big broadcast of 1936 of V.I. Sing from the show of the same name. This program came to you from our Chicago studio. This is the National Broadcasting Company. V.I. Singh. I think that's the show Oscar the Band was part of. Really? I think so. Poor Oscar. He was involved in everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I mean, he just was into everything. He was into Broadway and composing and conducting and acting and writing. And he was so smart. He was on information, please. <laughs> And he thought he had accomplished nothing. It was so sad. I know. That's one of the things I got for Christmas, are some uh, Bill Telephone Hours featuring Oscar LeVant. Ah, okay. So, oh, you uh, mentioned the Bill Telephone Hours. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any of them. Uh, I didn't have any, so we got, we're going to play some tomorrow. And uh, But I made sure I got some Oscar LeVant material. Oh, that that is very excellent. Yeah. Oscar LeVant is Oh, he was just, I really enjoyed him, or I, I do enjoy mm-hmm. him a lot. I mean, I didn't know him when he was, <laughs> when he was still alive, but, uh, you know, he's, he's one I wish we had today. He had such verve and character, not verve, that's a bad word for him. He had character, he was different, and it was okay with him. Mm-hmm. 
he was he was uncomfortably comfortable with himself. If oh, that makes a, any sense. That's an interesting phrase. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he he didn't. Hmm, I don't know how to put this. He wasn't pleased with everything that he did. It, it wasn't good enough, it wasn't big enough, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't. And yet, he was very comfortable with his shortcomings. He had no problem talking about his obsessive compulsive disorder. He had no problem talking about depression. He had no problem talking about um, addictions. He just didn't have any trouble. It was part of him, it was part of his humor. I know, as with many people, it it's a smokescreen when you try to make fun of something that's so serious. But he really had no trouble uh, talking about it. He had difficulty talking about things that he thought he should have done professionally or didn't do as well as he could have professionally. Um, you know, he, he was an enigma, to, to say the least. Yeah. But I wish he was still with us. Yeah. Yeah. I wish he was still with us. I'm glad we have the work that way youngsters like you and me who care we get to learn. Yeah. I, w I wish he were here and we were learning firsthand. Uh huh. I don't know. It just, that's really interesting. I don't know if, as an entertainer on any level, would he have survived in today's environment? Regardless well, of his brilliance. Let's face it. Um, I have to put that down. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Drop my toy. Yeah, there we go. We're gonna get a sound effect, right? No, I oh, dropped my I dropped my sound effect. But I was just putting stuff, in, put a CD away. Oh dear. Um, well, let's just face it. Piano, recital, piano virtuosos are not in great demand today. Well, that, that's true. And, that, and that was, that one, was only one aspect. And that was he, one of his gifts. He did composing. Composing. He did Broadway scores. And let's face it, Broadway musicals are really not in vogue. Right. I, I mean, so that would have been a, 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 one of my favorite lines. I went, to, I went to a Broadway show, Patricia, and I came home humming the scenery. <laughs> this was not a good show. That's a great line. I always loved that line. Oh, this was not a... Who wrote that? I don't know, but it was, it, it's a good... It was a review. Yeah, it's a great line. People didn't want to read that particular review. No, not, not the composer and the, uh, the arrangers of the score. No, certainly not them. No. So poor Oscar, for, for all his brilliance, all his abilities, all his gifts, all his skills, he probably would starve today. Right, because his, I mean, how many people make their living off their wit? I mean, we don't have a vehicle today for satirists and wits. Maybe in the writing field, if you're a wit, you can survive. I don't know. I don't know how many wits we really have in America. No. Um, We've got, the closest we come is somebody like Jay Leno. Correct. Conan O'Brien. Correct. The closest we can come. Correct. No, you, you can't live on wit, and writers who write humor are called hungry. It might be the best stuff in the whole wide world, but 
the only person you have to sell an article to, and especially humor. You don't write for an audience, you write for the editor. If you don't please the editor, it doesn't go anywhere. And that's, and that's a scary thought to think about, that you have yes. one person control controlling the um, content for millions of people to mm -hmm. read. I mean, it's, it's not a, a formula by any means, no. but the, the smarts come in by knowing the publication. What do they run? How do they run it? How long are the articles? How many commas do they have in sentences? How many people do they quote? And you look at this, and you get a feel for what these people buy. You don't try to change the editor's mind by saying, you people ought to be running X, Y, and Z, and here's an article. Well, you know, if they ought to be running X, Y, and Z, don't you think the editor would be smart enough to know that, you know? Well, so. and I, I, you know, been studying a little bit about some of the famous writers mm -hmm. um, of our American culture. Ernest Hemingway, some, some of those guys didn't mind. They didn't care. They, they wrote what they wanted to write. And if it didn't sell for years, or they worked on it for years, they didn't care. Yeah, I think um, Faulkner was probably like that. And, and I'm not sure anybody today can even read Faulkner. But with Ernest Hemingway, I think it was important for him to be recognized as a writer. It was important for him to write, but I think it was important for him to be recognized as a writer. Correct. But what I'm saying, he didn't hurry his material. Some of these guys no. worked on it for years uh, before they even had it published. In, in other words, I don't know if necessarily they they so stylizing. Um, they were blessed to have uh, somebody believe in the material to publish it. Well, the publishing world is a little different today. It was. It was in Hemingway's time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that a publisher likes to look for, and this is broad brush generalization, but when they like a book, they want to know that you can produce another one, that this is not just a, a one-time fling. They're not going, they would prefer not to invest a whole lot of time, a whole lot of energy on a one-time thing. They want to talk to a writer and feel comfortable that this writer can probably put out two or three more books. Well, how many people are just sure one-hit wonders? One-hit wonders? Mm-hmm. In the writing field. In today's environment, I'm not sure we could find a whole lot. Um, one of my shortcomings is that I'm not a fiction reader. Mm-hmm. I, I read very little fiction. So I'm a bad one to ask that. But I'm just saying... But I don't... I, if, if, when you go to the New York Times bestseller list... Right. If you find a name on there you're not familiar with, he's going to be there next year. Is it, is it because those books have legs? Or is it because well, he... It's hit... because he's going to be writing another blockbuster. Uh-huh. So that means that the publisher looked at this person and said, I think he's going to be able to produce another book in a year or a year and a half. And it's going to be a good one, and this is, you know, so a one-hit wonder, I'm, I'm not sure we have I want to, that the, many out there. The ones that we do have are, one, are not necessarily write, people who made writing to perfection. It's just they knew they had one book in them. Yeah, and those are the people who are generally less recognized mm -hmm. than the ones who can produce another book. They really want to know. Uh, some writers are smart enough when they when they uh, create and, and craft a proposal and draft an outline 
they're smart enough to say, and I see these books as sequels, or I see X, Y, and Z uh-huh. in the future after this book. So they, they toss out some teasers that the publisher or the editor at the publisher's house, the publishing house, um, has some sense that this person is not going to sit back and say, I wrote a book. They're going to sit back and say, I am a writer and I am writing. A lot of it is attitude. Hmm. And they, they take it seriously. I mean, this yeah. is a full-time job for them. When yeah. you read a, um, uh, 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 any kind of an interview or a biography, mm-hmm. uh, mini-biography about um, Sue Grafton, for example. She's mm-hmm. the one with the alphabet mysteries. Right. A is for alibi, B is for burglar, or, you know, however mm-hmm. the, 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 the list goes. Um, she puts in a minimum of five intensive writing hours a day. And for writing hours, that's a lot. When, you, when you're talking in the, in the creative milieu and you're talking about shaping a novel that has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a mystery in there in between, um, Tony Hillerman did the same thing. Five hours is, is their threshold. Um, some have a hard time going past five hours, but the really successful ones who are serious about this as a profession rarely write less than five hours a day. That's a lot of hours. That's a lot of hours. To me, I think writing is very intensive. It is. It is brain intensive. Yeah. It's exhaustingly brain intensive right. sometimes. Sometimes it's fun. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's really cool to sit there and, and you know, just keep going and going and, and, my gosh, you get to the end and it's just the way you envisioned it coming out. But it's not always that way. Well, do you have respect for somebody who wrote for radio, like a Carlton E. Morris or a Norman Corn who had to produce every day? Do I have any thoughts about it? Uh-huh. What's your thoughts? What you asked? I'm, yeah. in, I'm in awe of these people, that they could create shows. Now, one of the advantages that they had um, that somebody like Sue Grafton already has uh, or also has is that they've got consistent characters. Correct. So they know how they behave. They know how they talk. They know how they react to particular situations. They know when Molly is going to shake her head and say, oh, dear. And they know when Mo- when Fibber is going to thunder up the front steps and scream, Molly, Molly, mm-hmm. Molly, look what I got. Molly, where are you? They know what those situations are. And it's like living next door to the family. So, Norman so Cor- would somebody like Norman Corwin be a tougher skill set because he's coming up with a new concept, new ideas every week. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, okay. Very much so. Um, he was a creative genius. I don't know, what what was his output? And it's hard to measure output. I mean, with a, with a show like Tibber McGee and Molly, every week they had to come up with a script that worked. I don't know with a Norman Corwin Sometimes how, he, it, how it works, but he could write on command, which he, is wrote on command. Some, he ability. Would, yeah, sometimes he had a 26-week cycle. Or a 13-week cycle. Then after that, they ask him to write features, you know, a, a feature or something. Mm-hmm. So he was always, you know. He was on he was on a, a fast turn track too. Mm-hmm. Somebody could pick up the phone and say, "We really need this," or "This has happened in the country, and we need something to address it." Right. And in 24 hours, he could produce something right. that was high enough quality that it has survived all these years. Which to me is just amazing. It is. It's incredible. I just, 
honestly, when I, you and I have talked about this at different times, mm-hmm. the radio writers are marvels. They were absolute marvels in what they were able to put together. Somebody like Don Quinn, who wrote Fibber McGee and Molly, or the, the lion's share of the Fibber McGee and Molly shows, right. what he came up with was extraordinary. Yes. I mean, the alliterations that Fibber does, that, that just delight me so much, mm-hmm. they have word combinations. They have, uh, for, for example, one of the shows, later we're going to hear a show about visiting on New Year's Eve, or New Year's Day, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And it, one of the people they visit is going to be Wallace Wimple. And Sweetie's face was out at a meeting. Now, I'm going to get this wrong. It was women... Oh, gosh, they were doing something to the husbands. But the the acronym for that was W-I-T-C-H. That was the, you know, the initials of the group that she was part of and she was going to be, and they called themselves the witches <laughs> because the, the, the name of the organization had W-I-T-C-H. Those were the first letters of the, of the name of the group. And he said, and Sweetie Face is going to be the, I think the lead witch, it wasn't the head witch, but it was the lead witch, and it was so appropriate for that particular character, but he came up with this acronym that fit the character, and he did it on Fast Turnaround. Amazing. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I listen to these shows. I don't care what show it is, whether I love it or don't love it, or it's one that I would put a, put aside. It still had to be written, and it had to be written in character. It had to keep the, the theme and the spirit of the individual show, and they did it. Every single week they did it, and sometimes they did it five times a week, like Superman and, um, you know? Yep. Gee, Willikers. When I grow up, I want to be like them. In a way, it's probably a blessing, because you 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 know you uh, you're good enough. You got steady work. Uh huh. Because you're in high demand. But I I just imagine it's just you know your the productivity level. You knew you had to crank out so many pages a day. Right. What's and, uh, what's really amazing is. Not so much that they cranked out X number of pages a day or X number of pages in a week that had to be rehearsed and revised and edited and tweaked and lengthened and shortened. That could that was fine. But it was quality. It was not only look at all the pages I put together and here are your lines for the week. They were good lines. They were great lines. They were fun. They were serious when they had to be. It's just fabulous. Like I said, I want to be like them when I grow up. Have you? Could you, could you arrange it, please? Oh, I, I will. I one of my goals to take care of Patricia and let her right, right for that style. <laughs> and let her, let her grow up with uh-huh. radio. Oh uh-huh. my goodness! They really. It, it is such a joy for me to listen to some of these shows, just from the, from the skill standpoint, to hear how they. They, they were true wordsmiths. Mm-hmm. They were true wordsmiths. Okay. I've got some New Year's traditions and stuff. What are you on me? What you got? Well, okay. Let's see. We, we, did, we, we did some of this. Um, the Midnight Noise. Do you know where 
making noise and setting off firecrackers and blowing whistles and noisemakers and stuff. Do you know where that came from? I do not. Okay. The idea, I'm reading this. This is on the Internet, so it's got to be true, remember. The idea of making deafening noise is to drive away evil spirits. At the stroke of midnight, we hear deafening, a deafening cacophony of sirens, car horns, boat whistles, party horns, church bells, drums, pots, the, you get the idea. Mm -hmm. And it was to drive away evil spirits and start the new year fresh. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Yep. Yep. Hey, willikers. Okay, the Rose Parade. This is, this is obviously a tradition. Yep. In Pasadena, it started in 1886 by the Valley Hunt Club. Are you familiar with that? I am not. Never heard of it. Never well, heard they of it. started by decorating their carriages with flowers. That was meant to be an artistic celebration of the ripening of oranges in California. Well, that, that makes sense, sure. Yeah. yeah. In the afternoon, athletic events were held, and the city of Pasadena later relieved the club of sponsorship of the parade, and the city was, in turn, succeeded by the Tournament of Roses Association. And generally, the flower-decked carriages gave way to the floats that, by parade rules, are only covered with fresh flowers. You cannot use anything other than fresh flowers on the floats. I'll say that one a bunch of times, fresh flowers on the floats. <laughs> this is good. Uh, you're good. Okay. Okay, Mummer's Parade. You know the Mummer's Parade in, in Philadelphia? I, you know, the first time I ever heard about it was this morning. No, Joe. Yeah, I oh never heard. Oh, my goodness, yeah, I, the Mummers are, are very famous. They get dressed up and, oh, I don't know what they wear now. I haven't seen them for a very long time. But they used to have elaborate headdresses that, you know, with eagle feathers and all the, the costumes were just incredible. And the, 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 well, it says, here's the, here's the sentence. The English brought with them their ancient practice of mumming. Well, for pity's sakes, you know, I mean, the mummer's mum. What am I going to, do you know what mumming is? Nope. I never heard of it before. Nope, I, I never have. It was just, I just thought it was like a brotherhood name mm -hmm. that they had, but it's not. It is the act of disguising yourself in special costumes, which are sometimes fantastic costumes and include a mask. That makes sense. That's what these guys do. Mumming, and okay. They, Mm -hmm. do the Mummers Parade, they do the whole parade dressed in these costumes and dancing and doing fabulous gyrations during the whole thing. So that's the Mummers Parade. That's a tradition. I don't know when it started, though. If anybody knows what year the Mummers Parade started in Philadelphia, it would be nice to know. Yes? 714-545-2071. They were talking about this parade in Philadelphia starting in 1997. So maybe it's a different parade. Oh, it's a different parade. Yeah. Oh my goodness, no! These these people have been around longer than thirteen years, huh? Decades, decades, decades. Yes, decades. Now, okay, so that's my homework when I play the next show. I have to go find when the Mummers first started their parades. Okay, luck in the new year. People try to spend the first day of the new year in the best possible way in the company of family and friends was once believed to be, this one I have underlined, it was once believed to be a good omen if a tall, dark-haired man 
visited your house on New Year's Day. Now, that was important to me because mm. my Irish grandmother mm -hmm. was superstitious. Ah. And this was one of her superstitions. She would call the next-door neighbor. Whom, I mean, she loved that family. It would, they really had a wonderful relationship. Uh -huh. But just before midnight, every New Year's Eve, she would call the neighbor to come over and stand on the porch, on the front steps, mm -hmm. until the stroke of midnight, and then he was to come in through the door. And that was the blessing of good luck for the rest of the year because this dark-haired man came through the door first. It, and it only counted if he was first. <laughs> and that's why she orchestrated. Oh, wow. When she called saying, now, Chris, I want to make sure you're still awake. <laughs> it's almost time to come over. And she would orchestrate this, and he would come. He would do it. Oh, wow. Bless his heart. And the clock would strike midnight. He would come through the door, and she was just so happy for the rest of the year because he brought her good luck. Didn't make any difference what kind of a year she was having. It was that he had come through the door and he was the first person. Wow. I never heard that. Okay. That's a new one on me. That was the only time I ever heard it. I was just delighted when I came across this. I didn't realize that it had any significance to anyone else, but clearly it did. Okay. Early American observances. Let's see. The principal customs of the day, and we're talking in the 1600s, um, were visiting friends and exchanging gifts on New Year's Day, to which the English added a turkey shoot. But in March 1773, the New York State Legislature, did we have a legislature in the 1773? Uh, well, it must have been state legislators, yeah, because, you know, we had a Congressional Congress in 1774, 1775. Yeah, well, in New York. They outlawed the firing of guns and explosions. Really? Which sounds really, well, that's what it says. I don't know. Sounds dumb to me. I can't imagine in 1773 somebody putting a ban on guns. I no. guess you could have guns, but you couldn't fire them. <laughs> this is good, right? Okay, did you ask me last night, was, was, I think it was you who asked about why the baby signifies the beginning of the new year? I will plead guilty, yes. Okay, you did it. Well, I found it. Oh, right. I found it. It says, the tradition of using a baby to signify the new year was started around 600 B.C. by the ancient Greeks who, at the start of a year, would carry a baby around in a basket. The purpose of it was to honor Dionysus. I don't know who Dionysus is. The god of fertility and symbolize his annual rebirth. Dionysus was the god of fertility. Now, you will go to your grave being grateful that I told you that Dionysus <laughs> was the god of fertility oh, in ancient Greece. Wow. But that's where, it, uh, that's what it says. That's where it originated from. It was borrowed from that particular custom. Mm -hmm. In Times Square, um, I found that it was December 31st, 1907, to ring in 1908. And what else do we have here? Got lots of good stuff. Resolutions. Resolutions. Mm -hmm. In order to have a clean slate on which to start a new year, people in times past have made certain that they were that they had all their borrowing cleared. 
Isn't that interesting? Now, last night, Fibber was cleaning up all his obligations. He was two days ahead or three days ahead of New Year's Eve, but he was cleaning up all his ob- obligations, and that's consistent with what they're saying here. They also said those were the days before credit cards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but people would go around and take care of all their obligations and pay money back. Or you know, if you owed a favor, they would do the favor before the New Year. Mm-hmm. This is pretty good. Early American, baby, Times Square. We got that. So those are good. You, right? You done good, my dear. I've got more. Oh, wow. I saved the food until last. Okay. Yeah. I would really love to hear from people who have New Year traditions or New Year customs. Anything that their families did when they were growing up, that was pretty typical. Did you have a party? Did you go to a party? Did you stand in the middle of the street and yell and scream? Mm. I don't know. They were out here yelling and screaming last night. But we have Lucky Foods. What do we have to munch on there? Well, we have Lucky Foods. I know I touched on some of them last night, but there are greater explanations in an article that I found at epicurious.com. It really is a high-end food site. It's good. And then giving the guide to feasting for good fortune in the new year. So they've got six major categories of good foods. The grapes that we learned about last night, veggies or greens, fish, pork, legumes, and cakes. Now, the grapes we, we talked about, that go, and this goes back to 1909, when grape growers in Alicante region of Spain initiated the practice of eating grapes to take care of a grape surplus. So everybody had to eat 12 grapes. At, uh, well, that took, at yeah, that took care of the surplus. So they got rid of their surplus. Oh, this is good. Mm-hmm. Each grape represents a different month. Now, this is fun because this is more than I found last night. Each grape represents a different month, so if, for instance, the third grape is a bit sour, March might be a rocky month. For most, the goal is to swallow all the grapes before the last stroke of midnight, but Peruvians insist on taking a 13th for good measure. Now, that's really interesting because 13 of anything is typically considered bad luck, but they take it for good measure. Okay, now, the vegetables you're supposed to eat? Uh-oh. One oh. Thing. <laughs> Walton is more a peanut butter kid than I'm. <laughs> what do you got there for me? Okay. Uh, may I have them for dinner? Okay, the cooked greens that are good luck foods mm-hmm. are cabbage, Didn't have that. collard greens, Didn't have that. kale, no. and chard. No. And those are good luck because the leaves look like folded money. And they're symbolic of good fortune. I had carrot, corn, and iceberg lettuce. I guess none of those count. They don't, they don't look like folded money. No. Oh, well. Okay, what else? It's why we believe that the more greens one eats, the larger one's fortune will be the next year. That was probably started by the vegetable farmers. I assume so, yeah. <laughs> Legumes. They include beans, peas, and lentils are also symbolic of money. And in the southern United States, it's traditional to eat black-eyed peas or cow peas in a dish called Hoppin' John. I've never heard cow Howard peas. Howard is listening. This is something that he could help us with. Mm-hmm. I don't know what cow peas are. I have no idea. I know idea. what black-eyed peas are, but I don't know cow peas. I've never heard of them. 
Have you ever heard of them? Nope. I've, I've never had Black IP. They don't serve them out here. Oh, you, can, you can buy them. Can you? Yeah. Okay. There are even those who believe in eating one pea for every day in the new year. So, <laughs> I mean, who's going to sit and count out 365 peas? You, you what happens it? if you miss it on leap year? You eat them with a knife, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, it says, this all traces back to the legend that during the Civil War, the town of Vicksburg, Mississippi, ran out of food while under attack. The residents fortunately discovered black-eyed peas, and the legume was thereafter considered lucky. This is not a food site, so I'm, I'm thinking they probably know more than people who just pull these things out of their hats. Mm. Okay, pork. The custom of eating pork on New Year's is based on the idea that pigs symbolize progress. The animal pushes forward, as opposed to going backwards like a chicken. The animal pushes forward, rooting itself in the ground before moving. That's interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't eat chicken, eat pork. Okay. So if you ate, it doesn't say anything about red meat, except one place said that the Catholic Church was anti-red meat. And that's how come, oh, here, wait a minute, maybe it's in here. Let's see. Joy, de joy, joy, in Italy, baklava. Well, I know for many years what the custom that the Catholics would have was it fish for Friday or one of the days. Yeah, Friday, Friday was fish day. Yeah. Okay, cod has been a popular feast food since the Middle Ages. Um, ah, here it is. Uh, Kurlansky, who wrote a book, um, a biography of the fish that changed the world, and, and it was about cod. Kurlansky also believed the Catholic Church's policy against red meat consumption on religious holidays helped make cod and other fish commonplace at feasts. I had no... I, I never heard that the Catholic Church had a policy against red meat. I know that Fridays was fish day. Yeah. They, they, they said no meat on Friday. Yeah. But I never heard about red meat. I didn't either. So maybe somebody out there has some history for and us. Then, that... and, and then we went to some of the old-time radio shows. Some people had meatless Tuesday, but I think that was because of rationing. That was the way they could have managed it. it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And having things like eggs and cheese made their ration points go further. I like eggs. Okay, cakes. Now we're into my territory. All right. Cakes. Yeah. In certain cultures, it's customary to hide a special trinket or coin inside the cake. And the recipient will be lucky for the new year. This is good. <laughs> Round cakes are commonly served, uh, and it's... At all, let's see, place on a ring or ring-shaped items. A round one is considered good luck because it's full circle. It doesn't have a beginning or an end, and it's just a continuation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, in Scotland, where New Year's is called Hogmanay, H-O-G-M-A-N-A-Y, Hogmanay, there is a tradition called first footing in which the person to enter a home after the new year determines what kind of a year the residents will have. The first footer often brings a symbolic gift, like coal, to keep the house warm, or baked goods such as shortbread, oat cakes, and fruitcake, called black bun. Yeah, you like to have all kinds of visitors. Always have, make sure the household always has food. That's nice. What not to eat. There's a whole list of what not to eat. This is good. Uh, chicken and lobster, of course, are, are on the list from last night. Mm -hmm. Another theory against 
Uh, oh, another theory warns against eating any winged fowl because good luck could fly away. Superstitions are really intriguing. Uh -huh. In Germany, it's customary to leave a little bit of food on your plate past midnight to guarantee a stock pantry in the new year. Now, in Emily Post territory, mm -hmm. Emily Post territory says you should leave a little bit of food on your plate. That's true. For me? I don't think so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> in front of me, it's gone. <laughs> Likewise, in the Philippines, it's important to have food on the table at midnight. Eat as much lucky food as you can. Just don't get too greedy. And everything is going to be fine for the new year. Hooray! So, so we have to have grapes, cooked greens, beans or peas, pork, fish, and cake. Now, doesn't that make an appetizing dinner? I think I can manage on on uh, pork, grapes, and cake. Pretty good. Pork, grapes, grapes and, and cake. cake. Well, okay, I'll do the cooked greens. I like veggies a lot. I know you do. Yeah, and beans and peas. I'm not wild about peas. Lentils are okay, mm -hmm. but beans are good. So I'll do the beans and um, and the collard greens. Can can we have a tossed salad in here too? Sure. Okay. I'll I'll do the fish. All right. Good. I'll do the fish. Yeah, I know you hate fish. I'll do the fish. <laughs> Between the two of us, we've got all the bases. We got it, man. One of us is going to be lucky for half a year, and yeah. the other one is going to be lucky for the other half uh, of the year. And long as we stick together, we got a whole year. This is right. Yeah. Ain't got a barrel of money. Money. That's true. Remember that song? Oh, I do. I remember hearing it. Where would, where would I have heard it on a radio show? Traveling along. Seen along, huh. side Hi. by side. Hi. Well, yeah. K-Star had a big hit of it in 1953. Okay. And so it could have been easily a popular song on a lot of radio shows, comedy shows, in 53 or so. Uh-huh. 53, so, that's interesting because that they were, help me with this, in 52 and 53, we were into pretty prosperous times post-war, weren't we? Uh-huh. But I think... We had a run that they took song and like to redo them. Mm, so, okay. So I bet I bet if you look up side by side, mm-hmm, I bet it goes back to twenty years sooner or the thirties or so. Ain't got a barrel of money. money. Maybe we're ragged and sunny. Money. Ah, E M M X I E is still up there on Google. Oh, they got little fireworks in the background. <laughs> Okay, and I am side-by-side. Side. Right. And I will add barrel of money. Picture the song. Side-by-side. Side, barrel of side. money. And if I look up the lyrics, it's probably going to tell me when it was done. Side-by-side mm -hmm. side lyrics. Yep. Play a song. Do-do-do-do. Side-by-side. Um... Okay, well, we'll try this one. Boy, boy, boy. Side by side. Uh, doesn't give a year. We will find a year. Don't go away, Walden. We'll keep talking. Well, why don't we play a little bit of um, something we're going to feature tomorrow? Okay, what are we featuring tomorrow? We're going to feature a little bit of Peter and the Wolf. Okay. And we're going to do the Fred Allen version now. 
And let's see if we can tune this up while Patricia tries to find a song. Let's see. Okay. Let's see. If, uh, let's see. What did I do? What did I do? What did I do? I think I did it over here. No, 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 no. It's over here. Over here. I and got it. You do? Would you look at this? Here is the list of people who performed it and oh. when. All right. Go ahead. And you know who were the rhythm boys, don't you? Don't tell me they were the Kingsmen. No, no, no. That's Bing. Bing Crosby was part of the rhythm boys. No, Josh. Yeah. So that's who was the rhythm boys. 27. Boy. Wow. Yeah. Boy, he had one heck of a career. No doubt about it. Okay, still in 1927, Aileen Stanley and Johnny Marvin. Okay. Still in 1927, Cliff Ukulele Ike. Edwards. Now, oh. I heard that name, but I don't recall having heard his music. Well, yes, you have. I have? Mm-hmm. When you wish upon oh, a that's star. right. He was the original voice of Jimmy the Cricket. I remember that now. Yeah. Ukulele Ike. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was 1927 was the big, the, the big, the big ha-ha for big that ha, Okay. And it went underground until K-Star in 1953. Right. Brenda Lee in 59. Wow. Ray Charles and Betty Carter in 61, mm-hmm. and Dean Martin in 66. Now, that's quite a history for one song. Not bad at all. Wow. Not bad at all. It's a long song, too. Oh, it's, it's a biggie. It is. So there we have it. It was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, per, eight uh, nine. Mm-hmm. Nine different issues of one song. Woo! Here's a little bit of Fred Allen, I think, and Peter and the Wolf. Hey, I guess not. <laughs> Peter's hiding. Yeah. Instruments. Here we go. World. Peter, from the live broadcast of December 14th, 1953. Fred Allen, with the Bell Telephone Orchestra and one of the best-loved children's tales in all the world. Peter and the Wolf. Peter and the Wolf is a musical tale. Now, a tale isn't a tale, of course, until it has been told. And this tale is going to be told by a cast of musical instruments, a different instrument impersonating a different character. The bird will be played by a flute. The duck by an oboe. The cat, rather a low type, by rather a low clarinet. The grandfather, a very old man, by a very old bassoon. Now, every tale, of course, has a villain. Our villain, the wolf, will be played by three horns. And our hero, Peter, a fearless little boy, is impersonated by a fearless string section. And 
And when our chorus of hunters start shooting their guns, to you they will sound like kettle drums. And now that you have been introduced to our entire company, our tale begins. Early one morning... And we'll hear that tomorrow night. Peter and the Wolf by Fred Allen. It would have taken me a little bit of time to recognize Fred Allen's voice, even though his pronunciation of some of the words were typically Fred Allen. I've never heard him in this kind of a recording before. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be great fun. Peter and the Wolf is a wonderful story. Good. I really like Peter and the Wolf. Uh... Music is spectacular. Yeah. You know, to tell an entire story with music, which is essentially what they're doing. Right. It's, it's just... Grand. What a piece of creative work. Mm-mm-mm. It makes it one of the, the cherry tops of life. A good the, story. The what is? A cherry top of life. A good story yes. with music and... Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, yes. So I owe people a bunch of uh, CDs, and I need... Well, let me let me go check, but um, I know I made... CDs for Lucy in New York. Okay. She still, she still gets one more. Mysterious Traveler, I've only got one show, but I gave her something else, and I do have an additional show that she'll love. But I think I sent them, because I can't find them. <laughs> <laughs> and Lucy, I'm still working on the interview stuff. I just still haven't been, I had to, my little computer been having a little hiccup thing, so I'm, Oh, that's right, with uh, yeah. Sarah Carlock. Yeah. When, when you get that transferred. Right. right. Lucy will get a copy of you that. So that'll be fun. So, well, you want to do a second show, Let's or you want to just kind of cultivate some phone calls from our family? Well, you know, I think it. I think if we play a show, we'll get a call. You think? Uh huh. All right. Well, I hold on just faith. a second for me. I have faith. All right, the faith person. Mm-hmm. Here we go. We are going to be listening to New Year's Visiting, which is one of the items on the list. Visiting on New Year's Day is a tradition, a time-worn tradition that can get out of hand when too many people show up. But uh, Fibber and Molly are going to be visiting their neighbors. Well, then, I want you to listen to this, uh, just the opening, if you would, because it's one of the shows that's identified as transcribed. Yes, it does have that. So, probably because it was a holiday? Because it was it was broadcast on January 1st, 1952. If you recall last week, we played the, the week before, and that was also said transcribed. Ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So they recorded it early and played it on the holiday. They must have. How about that? Well, here we are, January 1st, 1942. Mm-hmm. Molly is excited about the start of a new year, and Fibber is in a bah humbug mood. Good old Fibber. I'm not going to make a resolution. I don't care about New Year's. Until it comes time to visit friends. Because he knows that friends have money. Tradition dictates that people have food and refreshments for visitors, and that's going to really appeal to Fibber. Now, I never visited, or my family never visited. It was not making the rounds on New Year's Day. I envision that as an old English tradition, but apparently it was something that was very common, especially in the war and post-war years. Does that, did your family ever do that? 
just among family, family, um, you know, it, New Year's Day has always been sort of a big football, but we would actually, uh, you know, visit fam- other family kind of thing cause, and build around a big meal and, and the football, uh, that kind of stuff. I think what they're talking about is house to house. That's what I mean. I don't think, you know, generally what, you know, like most families, we do the house to house during the Christmas week. Uh, before Christmas week to do mm-hmm. to, to deliver goodies and treats to people. Yeah, that's during the week. Uh-huh. It, it's not like a particular day is set aside for you to go from one place to another to deliver gifts. Right. And uh, the traditions that I read about and what Sibber and Molly are doing in this show is actually going out from house to house. I mean, it's almost like trick-or-treating for Sibber because he's getting food at each stop. But it's an actual tradition that people would plop on their hats and put on their their best clothes yep. and go visiting friends. You know, I think... Show up at the door uninvited. You know, and I think, to be honest with you, I think that's a custom before our time. People actually just showing up. The, especially if it's a warm summer night, you know, it's just sitting on the porch and people come out, oh, let's go see Billy Joe. Yes, you yes. Know, that kind of and stuff, it, you don't see that today. No. Generally, most people call, hey, what are you doing? Oh, okay, can we get can we get together? Yes. You don't... They'll you, call ahead. Uh-huh. You don't... It's, and apparently, it was an expected thing because each place they stopped at had food for them. Or, you know, some kind of refreshments. Uh-huh. They, they, everybody was prepared with refreshments for people who simply dropped in. And that's what Fibber and Molly are doing there. So what we call now an open house. I guess. Mm-hmm. Except an open house would, you know, you'd say, well, between two and four, we're having an open house, and right. everybody would show up, right. and you'd feed them, and they'd all go home. Right. These people just dropped in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they took off at 2 o'clock. They took off at 11 o'clock in the morning. They, they walked around at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they would just show up at people's doorsteps, which is charming if you can do it, and especially... Because people were warm enough to expect them to show up. But it's a custom I never knew about. Well, now, my neighborhood's a little different than them. A lot of times, we might just, if we have company, neighbors might just come over just to say hi. Um, okay. You know, especially with my uncle in town or something like that. Huh? Well, you've got an unusual neighborhood. You're There's not, no doubt about it. You're not typical America by any means. Not you any. would fit into Mayberry RFD. Yeah, it's definitely, if my folks did... The two neighborhoods I grew up from over the last 40 years, it's definitely Midwest. Uh-huh. And it's sort of the Midwest roots, and a lot of people who ran it, this is sort of a Midwest custom, and that's sort of the dynamics of this. Yeah. You know. Well, I was really surprised when I first heard this show mm-hmm. a long time ago, mm-hmm. and because it's New Year's visiting, I pulled it out again. But apparently it is a custom rooted in tradition. They're not all by themselves. I mean, it just it just wasn't scripted mm-hmm. so that Fibber could get into trouble. Right. They, they took an actual custom, and Don Quinn wove it into a story. So here we are with New Year's visiting from January 1st, 1952, 
And I do have questions when the show is finished. So if anybody is awake out there and listening to us, at least let me know you're awake and listening to us. Even if you don't want to answer a question, you have to call after the show and let us know that there's somebody listening to us out there. So here we go with New Year's visiting, January 1st, 1952. Transcribed. <laughs> the Pet Milk Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> The first evaporated milk, Pet Milk, presents Fibber McGee and Molly, transcribed with Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Arthur Q. Bryan, Dick Legrand, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Keith Fowler and directed by Max Hutto, with music by the Kingsman and Billy Mills Orchestra. <laughs> Health, wealth, and happiness. That's our wish for you for 1952. And you can do a lot to make part of that wish come true. You can help keep your family well and happy by seeing that they get lots of good whole milk each day. And no milk you can buy is better than pet evaporated milk. No milk makes it easier to give your family this needed protective food in such a variety of delicious ways. You see, just one pint of pet milk supplies the same nourishing milk substances that you get in a quart of bottled milk. Because pet milk is good, sweet country milk with more than half the water taken out by evaporation. So by using this concentrated milk, it's easy to put extra amounts of those protective substances into many favorite family dishes. Creamed meats and vegetables, gravies, custards, puddings, cream pies, to mention a few. And of course, in place of cream for coffee. So start now to use pet evaporated milk in the many ways it can be used to add extra nourishment to foods your family enjoys. Let Pet Milk help to make 1952 a happy year for all of you. <laughs> to Mrs. McGee of 79 Wistful Vista, today is the beginning of a bright new year, full of hope, plans, and dreams. But to her husband, it's just another Tuesday. As we join Fibber McGee and Molly. I wish you'd show a little more enthusiasm. This is the 1st of January, 1952. Uh, After all, this is a special day, you know. What's so special about it? The sun came up this morning on schedule, and it'll go down this evening. Congress don't slap a luxury tax on it. it? (laughs) Getting steamed up about New Year's Day, that's a lot of twaddle. Well, now the rest of the world doesn't feel that way. Even the birds seem to be singing a little bit louder. That's what I said. All this New Year's Day stuff is for the birds. (laughs) Hand me one of them popcorn balls off the Christmas tree, will you? Oh, dear. All you've done all day is eat. There aren't many popcorn balls left, either. That's okay. I only want one. Watch it, though. I grabbed without looking a while ago and got what I thought was a popcorn ball and bit the rear end off a wax reindeer. I put a few slices of fruitcake in your purse at La Trivia's house. Oh, no. Sure. Oh, I wrapped it up good and nice in a napkin. Oh, for heaven's sake. There. No wonder this bag felt so heavy. Here, take it all out of here. Oh, no, no, thanks. One piece is enough for now, Tootsie. I'll ask you when I want another one. (laughs) Oh, hey. By a strange coincidence, Doc Gamble's office is right here, Molly. Let's look in on the old boy. Oh, this is a holiday, dearie. He won't be in his office today. Don't you worry. He'll be in. 
Well, look who's here. Happy New Year, Molly. The same to you, Doctor. And a jolly greeting to you, even, my boy. Happy 52, Patsol. <coughs> What'd I tell you, Molly? While normal people are home resting up like they're supposed to, old Money Hungry here keeps his office open so he can get rich off of the sick and the wounded. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Doc. Personally, I regard you not only as a friend, but as a guy that he's the most prominent doctor in Wistful Vista. Well, thank you, but I'm not really very prominent, I'm afraid. Oh, sure you are, Doc. Why, my gosh, your stomach alone is as prominent as any other complete doctor. <laughs> You'd better move out of that glass house before you start throwing any rocks. Oh, he doesn't bother me, Molly. I'm used to him. What did he do? Make a New Year's resolution to be more impossible than ever this year? Ah, resolution. Ah. He didn't make any this year, Doctor. No. It is his contention that one needs no resolutions when one lives a good, normal, healthy, friendly, kindly, honest, sincere kind of life, Doctor. Who? Me! I didn't recognize the description, Chiselhead. Well, I've had a lot of laughs out of all the silly resolutions I've listened to so far, Fatso. I will say, however, that all the hosts that we've been guests of up to now have all had the courtesy to offer us some kind of refreshments. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, pig nose. It was thoughtless of me. I have something here that a patient of mine brought me. A beautiful fruitcake. Fruitcake. Oh. Something wrong, dearie? Well, look at his face. Mm. That's as pretty a two-tone green as I've ever seen. What's the matter, my boy? No, I don't know, Doc. I, I just looked at that fruitcake and all... Oh, my stomach. Oh, dear. Uh, huh? What's he been eating today, Molly? Besides fruitcake, cookies, candy, potato salad, smoked oysters, oh. turkey, salted nuts, and eight or ten cigars. Popcorn balls, Doctor. <laughs> oh, that's just great. Take off your shirt, McGee. Okay, Doc. Oh. Hmm. Is he wearing a life preserver under his undershirt, Molly? Or... <laughs> oh, that's McGee. <laughs> Doctor, that is Christmas living. Has he been getting any exercise? Well, he's been striking a lot of matches. <laughs> he likes his own cigars, you know. He do any walking? Three times a day, Doctor. Oh. The Davenport to the table and back to the Davenport. <laughs> oh, yeah. What is it, Doc? Is it serious? Can you, you can tell me. I'll be brave. Hold my hand, Molly. All right, oh. It's the life you've been living, my boy. Oh. Nothing drastic, but you'll have to mend your ways a little. Anything, Doc, anything. Oh. What do I have to do? Five simple things. Yeah. Simple. Molly, you see that he does them. Right, Doctor. No cigars. Uh, no sweets. Regular exercise. Uh, get to bed early. Oh. And take a long walk every morning. Oh. Happy New Year resolutions, dearie. Oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Bibber and Molly return in a moment. Since this is the day for resolutions, suppose you resolve in 1952 to have more delicious meals at lower cost. Not possible? Oh, yes, it is. When you use pet evaporated milk. There are so many ways you can use pet milk in place of foods that cost more. For breading chops and cutlets, for example, use pet milk in place of eggs. In mashed potatoes, use pet milk in place of butter. 
In your coffee, use pet milk in place of cream. And in special whipped cream desserts, use low-cost pet milk in place of expensive whipping cream. You can use pet milk these many ways because it's a concentrated milk, concentrated to double richness by evaporation. And in every case, the foods you fix with pet milk will taste extra good and cost less. That's right, for pet milk costs less generally than bottled milk or any other form of milk, and much, much less than cream. So in 1952, do as other good cooks do. Use pet evaporated milk and enjoy better food at lower cost. Comfortable there on the Davenport, dearie? Yeah, yeah, I feel okay, I guess. Gee, I'm sure glad I got a chance to visit all our little friends before I got took sick. Well, that's a very nice thought, dearie. Yeah, it would have been awful if I'd have got took sick before I got a chance to eat all that swell turkey and potato salad and smoked oysters and fruitcake and popcorn balls and all uh, the rest. Rest, dearie. Hmm? You need rest. Hmm. Especially your mouth. <laughs> okay. Good night. Good night, and Happy New Year, everyone. The first evaporated milk, pet milk, brings you Fibber McGee and Molly each week at this time. Be with us again next Tuesday night, won't you? Have you ever tried to change your whole life just by changing your looks? Well, that's what a young friend of Sally Carter's does with surprising results in the story of the week on Pet Milk's Mary Lee Taylor program next Saturday morning. And immediately following the story of the week, Mary Lee Taylor gives you the special husband-tested recipe of the week for a main dish that's a big hit with men, barbecued corn and meatballs. Be sure to enjoy Pet Milk's big double-feature Mary Lee Taylor program next Saturday morning over this same NBC station. This program was transcribed. Next, it's Playhouse on Broadway on NBC. Happy New Year, everybody. Joy. Barbecued corn and meatballs. That's Sounds what Mary me. Lee Taylor is going to give recipes for, for <laughs> an economy dinner. Economy, because I'm not sure anybody would eat it. I'm sure you'd give it a try. Well, you're a corn person. Yeah, you yeah. would. Uh-huh. But it just doesn't sound like it goes together. All right, so here's the deal. Are you ready? I'm ready, my dear. What do you got? Here's the deal. It is January 2nd everywhere in the United States, and I want to wish... John and Larry Gassman, happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, birthday to, to you. you. Happy birthday, birthday dear John and Larry. And Larry, happy, happy birthday, birthday to, to you. you. Now, if anybody has any question that I can say, <laughs> uh, it is wiped out. There is no question. I cannot sing. I think you can. I can sing Under the Boardwalk. Boardwalk? Yeah. Ah, okay. Under the... No, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Down by the sea. Okay, well, we've got some questions here.
first, what I couldn't think of before, I went back and checked, it is the Women's Institute to Civilize Husbands that Sweetie Face belongs to. And the acronym is W-I-T-C-H, Women's Institute to Civilize Husbands. And Sweetie Face is going to be the chief witch. I think that is a stroke of genius. That really is genius writing. And to fit it in, in such a, a comfortable way, it wasn't strained, it just fit. Genius writing. Uh, so we've got three questions. Mm -hmm. What, were you going to say something about the writing? I was going to say, you think sometimes they write for themselves, figure maybe if the audience gets it, that's just a bonus. I think it's a combination. They know their audience very well, and they can keep a rhythm and stay in step with what the audience would love, and they loved what they wrote. It was a great combination. That's good. I like that. That's, that's my interpretation, oh, anyway. Right. I have no idea if it's true. But it seemed like Don Quinn and later Phil Leslie just loved what they did. Yeah. I don't think you could turn out quality like that unless you loved what you did. Oh, yeah. Loved a, what they did. It's a labor of love. Yeah, yeah it really was. Yeah. And they knew what they, the audience would respond to. And part of the joy is to know that you're making people happy on the other end, whether they're listening or reading. I think they've done good. I've got three questions. What you got? 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 These are easy, and we really need some some calls. It's 4.38. We haven't heard from our early morning people. We haven't heard from Harwood, which is kind of unusual. I hope he's okay. Um, Women's Institute, Civilized Husband. That is so good. Okay, here are the questions. Who delivered the annual New Year's address to the city council? I know that. I know that one. I know you do, because you listen to the show. That's true. What product was Harlow Wilcox selling in this show? It's different from what we're accustomed to listening to. And what did Doc Gamble offer Fibber at the end that just put him down? 714-545-2071. And even if you don't want to answer a question, call in and say hi and Happy New Year because we'd love to say Happy New Year to you too. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year to you. Somebody is calling to say, Patricia, don't ever sing again. Hello there. Are you awake? I wouldn't say that for anything. <laughs> Here you are. Hi, Harwood. Happy New Year. Right. Happy New Year to y'all, both. Same here. <clears throat> Do you want me to stop singing? No, you can sing all you like. You're tolerant. You are very tolerant. Most, most of the time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for extending it to me. Howard, do you make holiday, not holiday, do you make New Year's resolutions? No, that's worthless. Have you ever made a New Year's resolution? Oh, I'm sure I've made plenty of them. But I don't really recall any of them stuck very well. Yes, they, they haven't stuck very well. 
Um, did you do something special for New Year's or New Year's Eve? No, not really. Uh, I uh, I went to bed about the usual time and got up later to uh, see that he got here, and um, that was about it. What did you do for Christmas? Well. Oh, this is going to um, be good, huh? Some, some candy and stuff like that. Um, oh, hey, what was it? Um, I've drawn a blank. Oh, a belt. I got a belt buckle. I kind of collect belt buckles, big belt buckles. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to ask you about the collection in a minute. Okay, go ahead. Um... A pair of jeans, and I gave myself a, um, a couple of presents, and you know that's about it, I guess. What did you give yourself? Two telegraph keys of all things. One was made in 1955. Um, it was still part of a run that was made by bookies of companies for the government during World War II. So, you know, I was kind of glad to get it. And, um, well, actually, I got three things, and, I, and um, I'll get back to that in a minute. And I bought a, oh, um, well, it wasn't old, I think it was made in 99, but it was a camelback key made in Italy. And it was quite nice. A camelback uh, key. Telegraph key. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. The, um, no, you stick it in and you drive the camel around town, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, switch key for a camel. Uh, okay. Uh, what makes them called a camelback key is that the arm has got a curve or a hump in it. Now, they're all curved to some extent, but or most of them. Mm-hmm. Most of you better ones, but a camelback's got an excessive curve in the top of it. And um, this one had a, <clears throat> a cast iron, real heavy cast iron base, and the arm for um, um, arm is made out of brass, and, and they gold plate them so they don't tarnish or anything. But it was quite a nice key. Why does it have a bump in it? It doesn't have a bump in it. It has a hump in it. It's it's curved. Okay. Arch arch in the in the in the thing between the each end of the key. Uh huh. And it just kind of makes the end you hold lower to the table, which makes it easier to use. Got it. Okay. I did order another one. Well, actually, two more that haven't gotten here yet, but um, might be a little bit interesting. One of them is a postal key or a post office key, and it is the same um, design or replica, so to speak, of one used as a paperweight on Einstein's desk from a picture uh, in 1901 made in Switzerland. Wow. I didn't know you were a collector of anything. Uh, yeah, a few times. How did that get past us? You didn't share that. Yeah, you, you didn't ask. 
what do you collect? We've got telegraph keys and, and different keys, and we've got belt buckles. What else? Um, I've collected guns, but things have gotten so expensive, I don't do much of that anymore. But um, Antique. that's one of, the, one of these days I'll be selling them off to, <coughs> you know, put money back in the pot again. Uh-huh. Are these uh, antique guns? Are these... Um, modern guns, different kinds, Glock. Some of them are modern. I think the most expensive one I had was made in 1921. And, um, but they're all essentially more modern guns. I, I did have one that's interesting. Uh, when they built the Alaskan pipeline, uh, you know, from Valdez to wherever, uh, it's 801 miles long. Uh-huh. Well, there was a uh, gun shop in Alaska named Pat's Gun Shop after the pipeline was finished. He commissioned Colt to build 801 um, single-action army revolvers like the the old Colt you're familiar with under some other names hmm. um, that had um, the cylinder engraved and all this stuff has a lot of engraving on it. It also came with a a knife with a walrus and something else engraved on the blade. And these were all still numbered from 1 to 801. Um, and at the time that came out, I got two of them. My brother took one. I'm trying to think. Mine was... 501, I think I got 501 and 502. Anyway, uh, it's right at 500 was the serial number I got because a lot of them were gone at that point. But uh, I guess I really need to find out what the thing is worth because at the time I bought them, I think they were like $600 a piece. Had a wooden um, presentation case like that with them and all that. How long? How old are these guns now? When were they made? Uh, well, now, that one was made when the Alaskan pipeline was built. They're not that old. It's just the fact uh, it's made them expensive because there were so few of them. They were, I mean, and they were, talk about a limited edition. That's about as limited as you can get. Yeah, and uh, and they were serial numbered, of course, one for each mile of the pipeline. Uh, what, uh, what year did the pipeline finish? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Walton probably knows better than I do. Um well, wasn't it in the 80s? Yeah, I think so, because I remember hearing things want to break down and have weeks, so, uh, 82? Might, might have been, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not certain. And I don't know, I was trying to think either 74 or 64 when they started building the thing. Right. Yeah. So, how, how do you go about buying not only one, but two? from an extraordinarily limited edition. They were advertised in, I believe it was in Shotgun News. I'm sure they were advertised in several magazines, but my luck usually is I see these things after the fact, and they're all gone. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I looked up on that one and um, was able to get one before they got gone. How fast did... I don't usually have luck like that. Do you know how fast they sold? No, I do not. 
I got mine, and, you know, I would have bought more, but I didn't have the money. Yeah. But, um... $600 is a hefty price. I mean, not... It was, and uh, I was very lucky. Well, I guess I was lucky if I could have kept both of them. Huh? But generally, and I don't understand why this is, but they don't want to sell guns in consecutive serial numbers, you know, like one and two. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. And I've never understood the logic back of it. There's no legal reason for it. Um, and that's why I felt quite fortunate to get two consecutive numbers. But, you know, since my brother got one of them, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. How that, that they were consecutive. It would be interesting to find out the worth and the value of them today. Love to. I mean, from the, from the minute the 100, up to the 801st gun went, they started escalating in value. Oh, yes. Yeah. But all guns have escalated in value. Are, you know, um, better quality guns, now your Saturday night specials or whatever, never get sure. the valuable. But um, good quality guns have done nothing but going up um, drastically in the last 20 years. But the most expensive one that I have is a 1921 Thompson. Uh, it is an original. Um, there were only 15,000 ever made, and most have been destroyed for whatever reason. Um, so this is this is the Thompson Machine Gun Company. Uh, that's correct. It was Auto Ordnance that built them. Uh, Colt built some of them. Mine was made by Colt. Uh, Auto Ordnance. Um, sub these out to other companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the 20s, um, when John Thompson had, or have, was having them made. Um, but the last I heard, they figured there's only 5,000 still in existence. Wow. Mine is, the serial number is just above 5,000. Now, I don't mean that the, the lower 5,000 already exist, but only 5,000 of the 15,000. Uh-huh. It's what they figure is the only exists. And mine's in very good condition, and uh, it's something I've wanted since I was a kid, and you wouldn't believe what I went through to get that thing, but um, I finally got it. It's but I would really like to know what that's worth now, because when I got it back in the early 80s, I think, um with the federal tax and everything I had to pay on that thing, I think I had about $2,200 in it. Wow. I got a feeling that they're well in excess of six to eight now, but I don't know that for a fact. How many do you have in the collection total, all all firearms? I don't have a great deal because I'm not one of these people that had bukus of money to throw at this stuff. So, um, Oh, I really don't have quality pieces, but maybe 12 or 15, so it's not, you know, I don't have a, a large collection, because that's one of those things, like collecting old cars, you got to have money. And mm-hmm. But anyway, it was interesting to me. And I also gave myself an old um, telegraph sounder. Um, one of the companies that built 
Telegraph Equipment. It was J.H. Bunnell, B-U-N-N-E-L-L. And that's a little bit interesting. Jesse Bunnell was a telegraph operator during the Civil War. He was uh, McClellan's personal telegrapher. Uh, he was only 18 or 19 years old at the time. And he did a bunch of crazy things, too. He got himself kicked out of one job after another, but he always was rehired immediately at higher pay by somebody else because he was so good. But in 68, he started his own company to produce telegraph equipment. And he kind of, you know, really blossomed after that. And um, the last of the Benells died in sometime in the 80s. Um, I can't remember her name. But anyway, of course, the company's pretty well out of business. But I looked up and stumbled on the company still listed on the internet. It's been owned by a bunch of other companies. But I called the guy, and it's her nephew, I think. Yes, her nephew. Um, that is still selling these old, uh, the 1955 kids that I bought, it's a, uh, the, um, model number of the thing is a CJB26003A. It's a flame-proof key made by, made for the military, as I said. But each company had their own company designation in the first three letters, and I don't understand all of it. The C was on all of them. It was a military designation, and I do not recall what it means. I haven't gotten the paperwork on this thing yet that explains a lot of this stuff. But all of the last two letters, uh, you know, and all the designations <clears throat> seem to indicate the the manufacturer company's name, which this was J.H. Bunnell, so it was J.B. for Jesse Bunnell. Got it. And uh, I was, you know, really glad to get that. But anyway, what I was getting at is the nephew, uh, his name is Matthew Jacobs, and his daddy's still living too. And Matthew is selling these keys, and um, I asked him about the sounders, and he said he didn't have any, but he thought his daddy still had a few. And he talked to him about it, and he sold me one that was made, he thinks, sometime in the 40s, and from the look of it, it probably was. Although, it looks new, but just the way it's built, the type of wire, the insulation they used, and so forth, I feel sure it was probably made in the 30s or 40s. And I was really glad to get that. Now, just to send you for a thrill a little bit, this Matthew Jacobs is also building some miniatures that are all gold-plated, and he has a key and a sounder, which can you can buy on individual boards, or you can buy uh, both pieces on one board. And that is like what are generally called pocket sets. They won't go in your pocket. Don't misunderstand me here, because one of these boards, or at least the ones that I own, are not not these miniatures he's talking about. But the thing is, about on a board about 
I don't know, seven by nine, seven by ten inches. And it was the test set, like the phone, uh, the telephone service guys carry, you know, it looks like a little phone with a clip leads on it. It's the test set of the time when there wasn't any phone, you know, it was telegraph. And this was used for that and for uh, tapping into a line, you know, out along the line. Um, they're real nice too. But anyway, back to the miniatures. They started making the Benel started making these miniatures in the late forties or early fifties, and they gave one to President Eisenhower when he was elected, um, and several other um, uh, presidents, prime ministers, whatever around the country, uh, around the world. I mean. Back at the time, without he's, he's apparently reproducing some of these from parts, but I can't afford one. Um, one of the if you buy the key and the sounder, you're looking at close to six hundred dollars, and I don't have money like that to put in it, but I'd still love to have one. And oh, uh, well, another. A couple of other keys. There's a guy in England that builds gold-plated keys and sounders and iambic paddles. I think he makes bugs too. Um, those uh, are running, you know, anywhere from six hundred to nine hundred dollars. Um, one of the ones I would really like to have was a, a Danish key that the company went out of business in '88. That is a um, is called an Ampladan key, A M P L I D A N, and this was used a lot on military ships, um, merchant marine ships, um, other military applications, and um, it is one of the more prized keys that you'll ever find. Um, I saw one sold on eBay a few weeks ago, and I'm not sure when it was sold. I just saw where it had been sold. Uh, it went for $800. And there's still, you know, a lot of them out there, but most people who ever get their hands on one, they're not going to turn it loose. So it's rare to ever see one come up for auction. What makes them so valuable? These things, um, they're beautiful. The better made ones are. Most people, if they have ever even seen one, is little small jobs like the J-37 from World War II or whatever, which is a little small key, and it's just nothing spectacular. But these better keys are, um, some of them can get extremely ornate. Uh, I've got a, a, an iambic paddle that I bought probably 40 years ago for an electronic keyer. And it's made by Vibrate. Because it's supposed to be good for your throat. I Is Grand Prix. Because it's supposed to be good for your throat. I have no idea if it really helped, but it sure didn't hurt. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. There's a... 
my store about two miles up the road here. I, I never found that. Now, it used to be everywhere. I said, we used to sell it anywhere you went into had it. But when I got to looking for it, it wasn't that way. And uh, last week, I mean, this, this very past week, Barbara went to the store up the road to get some collards and hobgall. And she looked up when she went in, and they had bouquets of it right there on the wall. And I didn't know it. And That's interesting. They were trying to find it, and they had plenty. Huh. That's really interesting. And I, I, I feel like such a doofus because I had never even heard of it, never mind taste it. Well, like we said, I think there's probably different strengths of it depending on who's making it. So you order to try somebody else's sometime. But yeah, it's the Yankee in me, Harwood. You're so patient. Okay. <laughs> I'm just one of those Yankees, and look at all that I met. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. Were you listening before when I went through the lucky foods or the foods that are supposed to bring good luck in the new year? And one of them was cow peas. Do you know what cow peas are? Absolutely. Oh, I just knew I could count on you. What are they? Oh, doesn't everybody? No. Everybody except me knows that, right? I never heard of it. Well, you almost lead a law for sheltered life or something. <laughs> it's true. I really have. I've been nowhere. I know nobody. I depend on you for my information. What is a cow pea? Well, I th well, I think peas are pretty bland anyway, but those especially are, and I would call them more just a field pea, like I would call field corn or feed corn. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean that you shouldn't eat them; they're fine. I'm just not a big pea lover myself. But I can eat them, but uh, it's not one of my more favorite things. Do they grow in pods like regular peas? No. Oh, sure. So it's just a, a, a different variety of... Yeah, exactly. We have snow peas and... Right. It's the same kind of deal. It's just, just a different variety. Uh-huh. I want to make sure people understand we're talking about cow P-E-A. Uh, yes. I grow on bushes or vines. I can't remember which. Been a long time I had it. They don't come from. That's interesting. So you and you don't eat them. How would you eat them like a regular vegetable? Yeah. Do they exactly? Do they get ever get like dried peas? Well, no, yeah. Dried split um, peas, and they make. I them or let them dry in the field, and then you pick them and shell them. And of course, they're a lot easier to shell when they're dried, obviously. Uh huh. And you can just put them away as dried peas, and then. Um, put them on and boil them, just like any of the others. So it would make a good soup. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I, I... You, have you ever, since you're sheltered and all that stuff, have either, either one of you ever heard of chinky pins? No. No? Nope. All right, tell me about it. This is incredible. <laughs> I've, never had, ha, I've never had black eye peas. I don't even know what those things are either, so what do I know? Exactly. Mm -hmm. This is awful. <laughs> All right, now what are you going to tell us about? Would you say it slowly, please? Pinky pens. Pinky pens. Pinky, C-H, pinky pens. Oh, okay. Really sure how to spell them. 
you should be able to look them up, though. Um, yeah, it sounds like it's C-H-E-Y-P-E-N or I-N-S. Okay. They are small nuts that are shaped similar to acorns, but they're very small. Um, they're only, I guess if you saw one three-eighths of an inch across, it's a good size one. They grow on bushes, usually in creek bottoms and places like that that are damp. <clears throat> uh, they've been pretty much wiped out in the central part of North Carolina from a blight years ago, um, probably back in the 50s or 60s. Um, you still find them in the mountains of North Carolina, and I'm sure other countries too. I'm sure, surely you've heard of Kinky Pen Plantation between Greensboro and Reedsville, North Carolina. No. This this is one of the big houses. Uh, it's nowhere near the size of um, oh, what is it up at Asheville? Um, I'm drawing a blank here. There's a huge one up in blank uh, up near Asheville a plantation uh, that everybody's more familiar with. Um, I swear it won't come to me at the moment. But anyway. It's a lesser version of the same kind of thing, and it's changed hands a lot because I think the upkeep is probably pretty steep. But it it was a, a very large plantation house that, well, a whole plantation, but um, it has a lot, of, a lot of interesting things to go through, mm-hmm. like a museum and visit it. And they named it Tinkerton Plantation. I can't even talk. But I think a lot of that. The name came from a lot of the chicken pens in the area um, way back when, and mm-hmm. they're about all gone now. And it's been years since I had any of them, but um, I guess you could use them in recipes and all the other way I ever ate them was to just take them and shell them and eat them. Um, they had a fairly soft shell, but they just had the shape of an acorn. Okay. I'm I'm sheltered again. I never had any. I'm going to think of some other things to expand all your knowledge. <laughs> my horizons here were my yeah. foods. I have to add, and I love food. I mean, it's not it's not like I would have turned down something new. I like if you like if you like nuts, you would like pinky pants. Or at least that's what I see it. Uh huh. You don't like nuts, and you probably wouldn't like them. Oh, I love nuts. I am nuts. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> Just a little bit. It makes life interesting. Um, whether, whether we admit it or not. Yeah, it's the ones who don't admit it who... Exactly. Yeah. You know, when when you admit life is just a little crazy, then... And, and sassafras. Now, surely you've heard of that. Now, I've heard of sassafras. I have never had sassafras tea. What else? Uh, um, you know what it tastes like, though. No. Root beer. Sassafras does? Yes, ma'am. Wow. I'll be, I've had sarsaparilla. Well, that's where it came from. That is an early name for root beer. Um, but it comes from... Sassafras grows kind of like a, a, a small sapling. Uh, I've never seen a big sassafras, sassafras tree. Uh-huh. Um, the ones I've seen were probably 
oh, I don't know, six to eight feet high, and I never saw one more than maybe two inches in diameter at the base. Mm-hmm. Um, it does grow kind of like a tree more than a, I really wouldn't call it a bush, but. So do you use the leaves or the bark or uh, a bark? No, the bark off of the roots. Well, that poor tree, how does it survive? It doesn't. Well, I guess if you take all the roots, it doesn't. But I'll tell you one thing. When I was a teenager, a kid, we were out in the woods and found one. So we decided to get us some sassafras bark, uh, the root bark, and make some sassafras tea. And it just, it essentially turns out to be nothing but hot root beer, so to speak. <laughs> anyway, I got a whole heap more than tea out of that deal. I got covered up in poison ivy. Oh, no. So I never did that again. That was, it, it was no fault of the sassafras. We just weren't paying attention to what was around it was the problem. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I had a lot more than my goodness to say about it. But with me, I can get poison ivy just by thinking about it. Wow. Once you, once you imagine, had a really uh, bad... That was something to right. Yeah, it's increased sensitivity. So was the tea good? Was it at least worth it? Not worth poison ivy. But... Uh, it wasn't worth what I went through to get it. I would be very, you know, a whole lot more careful next time. Yeah. But um, it was just a different tasting tea. Huh. Now your root, your root beer, you get a lot of that now is synthetic, not the real thing. But it has a stronger taste than the tea we made. Mm-hmm. I think that's just from the fact that, you know, it's more concentrated. Um, to me, most tea is weak. Um, at least that's the way I would describe it. Yeah. So it was about the same as any other tea. It was just a little different because I'd never had any that way before. So if I buy sassafras tea in the store, I'm going to get the real thing? Uh, you better read the label. I don't know because I've never had any like that. I would hope so. Okay. That's where, that's where the real thing comes from. Okay. Well, I like strong tea also. So I will make a pot of tea and just let it sit forever. And then I put it in the microwave to heat it up. Right. And then it's good. Well, you know, there again, it's just, um, some people put a lot of water in it until it all boils out of it or whatever, you know, you can get quite weak just by putting water in it. And it, I don't know, it's just not my thing. I, I cannot drink black tea uh, with no sugar in it. No, I just, that's why I want coffee, but I sure can't drink tea like that. I can do that. I like the orange, uh, the constant comment and green tea and, Regular tea, and I, I, I don't use sugar. They're cool. I don't, don't care for green. I'm the way they are. I want sugar in it now, like the British drink it with milk in it. I don't go for that. Yeah, yeah, and I like the British teas as well. Um, they, can, they can be a little pricey sometimes, but when they're on sale, it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I, I will give sassafras tea a chance. I'm not going to buy a big box. I will buy a little box. You can't wander around the woods till you find one and do your own. 
Just watch out for poison ivy. Does sassafras grow this far south? Oh, yes, I'm sure it does. Of course, I've never been that far south, so I maybe shouldn't say that, but I really think it does. But uh, uh, so did about you where it grows and what it looks like and all that stuff. Did you ever taste alligator tail? No, never have. I'm one up on you. I'm one up on you. Oh, this is Okay. Let's see. I started to have it never ate possum either, but... Um, I couldn't swallow it. I, I hadn't done that either, so... Well, I couldn't swallow it, so I really... I do, but I, I, I just, just... Swallowed one time. Hmm. But that was all. I swallowed just one time, and then I couldn't swallow the second piece. I just, I, you know, it was a head thing. I just couldn't do it. Hmm. Well, well I've eaten, I have eaten terribly. Have you ever eaten that? No. Well, you've really missed something. That is very good. Are you going to tell me it tastes like chicken? Most people say that, and it might. I haven't had any since I was a teenager. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know if it does or not, but I didn't see a thing in the world wrong with getting a teenager to taste something is hard business, but I never saw any problem with it. I loved it. Uh, I only had it twice. An old fellow lived down the road here. His wife, when he would catch one, she would cook it. Mm-hmm. He brought some to my daddy twice, and uh, I got some of it. Uh, it was cut up in small pieces, um, you know, not anything very large. Uh-huh. But um, it was fried, but I thought it was quite good. Does it matter what kind of turtle? Can you cook a snapping turtle and a freshwater turtle? And Does it matter? And uh, these were all freshwater because we're too far from the ocean for it to be anything else. Uh-huh. But I don't know what variety either time was, and it might have been the same kind both times. Yeah. Well, all the ocean... Not likely. All the ocean turtles are protected now, so you could... Right. We would have to collect bail money if you got caught taking a, a sea turtle. Better eat fast or you won't get it. Say what? You better eat him fast or you won't get it. <laughs> get them home. They are big. Some of these... I know. Some of these turtles are 400 pounds. That's a lot of turtle. Yes, sir, that is a turtle. That is a lot of turtle. I watched... Most of these, I think, if he would catch her, were in the, you know, 8 to 12 inch category. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what they weighed. Yeah. On 8 to 12 inches, that's a pretty good-sized turtle. Well, yeah. I remember we used to catch terrapins, um... As a kid, uh, we didn't eat them. We just played with them and let them go. But when we had a garden, you could take a cantaloupe and break it open one night. And the next morning, if you looked around within 10 or 15 feet of that cantaloupe, you'd find a terrapin. Hmm. They, lo- they love them. Hmm. But we just, you know, we just pick them, keep them a few days playing with them. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how interesting. Well, you've got some really nifty stuff up there. I I need to get out more, don't I? Yeah, I mean, I thought everybody had it. <laughs> so I, I never really thought about it being anything special. Well, Walden didn't have it. So I'm not the only one who hasn't been in the right places. And I know, but see, I still thought everybody had it. 
mean, I didn't even know what cowpeas were. P-E-A-S, folks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we we you are concerned. Oh, Maybe you really better. Study harder. Study harder, yeah. Well, I'm going to have to check some southern recipes. That, that would help. That would help. You like fried chicken? Absolutely. That's good stuff. Yes, ma'am. Yep. It's like slathering plaster on the arteries. But if we stopped eating everything that wasn't good for us, we'd starve. Yeah. It's like I said a few weeks ago. You get tired of eating old tires. <laughs> <laughs> or cardboard, um, you know, stuff of that nature. And it's just not very appetizing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, I don't have fried chicken seven days a week, but um, I don't ever turn it down when it's available. Yeah. Well, I told you what the cardiac healthy, the heart healthy diet is. If it tastes good, oh. spit it out. That's a yep. good heart healthy diet. And there's there's a fine line, but you get... I, I, I remember reading in a book one time, the doctor was always after this guy about... You know, he needed to eat healthier and all this kind of stuff, and or he was going to die real soon. I mean, he was going to have a short life. And and the guy asked him, "So, well, did you do this?" And he said, "No, I didn't." And he said, "How long ago did the doctor tell you this?" He said, "I think it's probably twenty or twenty-five years ago." And he said, well, "What does your doctor say about it now? Since you didn't die?" He said, "I really don't know. He died a long time ago." Uh huh. <laughs> yes. George Burns did a routine one time where someone, he smoked 15 cigars a day. That's a lot of cigars. He is. And someone asked him, doesn't your doctor tell you anything about this? He said, sure. Three of them told me that. Two of them are dead and the third one's coughing. <laughs> yeah, right. That was a great line. And George uh, Burns uh, did, did not die young. He did not die young. And he still, he went with his 15 cigars a day. You know, I mean, he went for quality, and he got both quality and quantity. Right. My kind of person. I've got one more piece of trivia, and I'm sure people are tired of listening to me. Nobody's ever tired of listening to you. What? Well, I shouldn't be going on so long, but I just happened to think of it the other day. They were talking about the mail. You know, they're trying to stop delivery on Saturday. Well, I thought they are going to. Uh-huh. And... I read, and I, I really would like to confirm that it's true. You might try looking it up somewhere. But I read that in the sometime in the 1860s or early 70s in London, they almost had a citywide riot because they cut mail delivery to, from eight times a day to six times a day. <laughs> you are joshing me are you serious people i am quite serious unreal and now they don't want to deliver on saturday and now they don't want to deliver on saturday oh my goodness it's like the new york city transit system i found today that over a period they they would raise it 15 cents at a time so people wouldn't see that it was going up and up and in five years, it went from sixty cents to a dollar fifteen or a dollar twenty-five. That's a big increase in five years. That, that's that's why that a lot of things.
how the ball the frog syndrome. The the what syndrome? Ball the frog. Uh huh. Oh yes. Oh yes. And and you know it it happens all the time. It's not just with the transit system. Nope. Uh, have I have you noticed that a half a gallon of ice cream is only fifty six ounces now? Uh huh. And of course, Those people don't even know that. Nope. And a pound of coffee is thirteen ounces. Uh-huh. Yep. Boy, out here, we don't raise taxes, we just charge fees. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. All right, are you in the, in the mood for a question? Why, certainly. <laughs> Why, certainly. You, you're just so good. Did you listen to the show? Yes. Would you like the show questions? I'll be fine. Whatever you got. <laughs> You've never missed yet. Okay, who delivered, this is in the Fibber McGee and Molly show when they were making rounds to all of the people in the neighborhood or in the town. Who delivered the annual New Year's Eve address to the city council? Mayor Latrivia. Oh, yeah. 1949 address and still going on in 52. That's right. Boy, you really did listen. Um, who delivered, oh, I've already said that. Who, what? Which product was Harlow Wilcox selling in this show? Pet milk. Pet milk. Gee, willikers. I can't stump you ever. What did Doc Gamble offer Fibber at the end that finally put him down? A New Year's resolution. No. Well, you know, he was telling him that he had to quit eating, walk, all that stuff. Uh-huh. But if it was something else, I missed that one. Yeah, what did what made Fibber sick? What did Doc offer that made Fibber sick? Oh, oh, he offered him fruitcake. Yes, that's right. He'd already eaten, he'd already eaten so much that he was sick as a puppy. Right, right. And, and he made the rounds because people were feeding him. <laughs> this is great. Okay, do I have shows the, that you think you would like? Do you remember the comment that Mayor of the Trivia made over the ice cream? Sweet Genevieve. Um, yeah. exactly. I wonder how big a bowl he had. Oh, I know. Oh, that's right, because he said, uh, Fibber said the word ten, and Mayor Latrivia thought he said when. Fibber said, I didn't say when. Exactly. And he kept shoveling and shoveling and shoveling, and the same thing happened at Wallace Wimple's house. Yeah. 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 Did you catch any of those shows? I'm curious. On any of those shows, uh-huh. do you ever hear Sweetie Face? I have never heard her on any of the shows that I listen to, and I don't think she was ever a real character. I think she was a. No, I didn't think so either. I was just curious, but you know, I didn't think that um, Mert was either. But she turned up, well, I've only heard one that she mm-hmm. turned up on. Right. Trevor did not know who she was until Molly told him. Right. No, Molly didn't know either to what I heard. And I can't remember how they figured out who it was. Is it, I think they asked her, who Who are you? And she said, Mert. That was it, yeah. But that's the only one I remember her ever being on. I think that was the only time she was ever on. And it was a summer break. I don't recall... Which year it was. Walden, do you remember which year? 43, just before the summer of 43. Right, and they were, they were all taking a summer hiatus. Yeah. And uh, she came to say, have a good summer. 
But you're right. That's the only time we've ever heard Mert. And I don't think we ever heard Sweetie Face. Have you ever heard Sweetie Face? Uh, maybe, but I don't think so. It's sure like uh, Uncle Dennis, but they, they, they brought him during the war for a little while. And yeah, he was on during that Christmas treat. That's right. About two or three weeks ago. And then, That's the only time I ever heard him. And then Aunt Sarah finally showed up in 1950. I remember oh. Sarah showed up. Yeah. Uh, they had an Uncle Dennis is missing for mm-hmm. two weeks in a row, which was very unusual. I don't think they ever did another show that was continued next week. Was that the only time they did it? Well, sort of when it went to Aunt to Aunt Sarah's house, and they came back. Yeah, well, they were, but it wasn't, it, I don't think it was a continued next week type thing. Each uh-huh. show was self-contained. Well, remember remember when they got sick? Uh, when Teeny, and they threw a, a party at their house, because everybody was right. talking. Yeah, right, Teeny got the measles. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, and she didn't really. Yeah. But yeah, she had the measles, but Fibber had misunderstood right. the message. And when the doctor called, and it wasn't Doc Gamble, uh, it was um, Gildersleeve. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hal Perry played the role of the doctor, and he called and said, you don't have to be quarantined for measles anymore, and right. Fibber misunderstood the message. Tini did have the measles, but they didn't have to sit in quarantine, and there they were for two weeks in a row. So you're right. Mm-hmm. I forgot about that one, Walden. Have either one of you heard, and I cannot remember the name of the show, what it was called, so did you hear the uh, mystery um, police thing that Jim and Mary and Jordan did? They were yes. the stars. And it was backseat passenger or backseat driver. Backseat driver, February third, nineteen forty nine. Right. That was it. That was it. Yeah, suspense. Had that show. Suspense. Mm. And then they did two Lux Radio theaters. I never heard that. Uh huh. Let me see what I have here under comedy, under Fibber, special shows. Um, they did the, the Screen Guild Theater, and let me see which one that was. I think they did Yankee Judo Dandy, or not, a version of that. Yeah, well, they, they did one um, where they, they played the husband and wife and they wound up, they came to Hollywood looking for work, and they wound up being a maid and a butler. Mm-hmm. That was um, a, a Lux, I think, a Lux Radio Theater. That was at the Whole Town's Talking? That's one of them. That's yeah. one of them, mm-hmm. and then they did, what did they do with my special? One's in 40, one's in 41, I think, for Lux. Uh, Screen Girl 40. They did Heavenly Days. Yes, Heavenly Days in 47. And they did... Lady Esther. Yeah. Green Guild Theater. Now, that one did not have a name. And I think that's the one where they wound up as the butler and the maid. Okay. Um, and then at the suspense that Hollywood is asking about, uh, February 3rd, 1949. Right. Okay, and there was a comedy back from vacation. Oh, dear. And I know I have it. Please forgive me. I, I can't find it at this particular moment, but I do have it. And it was backseat passenger, and it was a suspense. And when I first heard it, I thought they were going to break into a comedy routine. I did not realize that it was a serious drama. It was the only drama I ever heard them in. Did they do another drama ever? Well, 
That one Lux 303 is the one that he th they thought he was a killer? Uh-huh. And that was sort of a drama. Well, it, it was, and that's the only one that I heard, mm -hmm. ever. But uh, that's, that one Lux Theater and that one Suspense. The Suspense was the only one that I recall as a drama. Uh-huh. Um, the Lux Radio Theater, all the others were comedies. The Whole Town's Talking, Heavenly Days. I didn't do the two Lux and the other one I'm thinking of. There's a Screen Guild Theater that was a comedy, but mm -hmm. it, that's, it, that didn't have a name. No. Um, and Lady Esther, mm -hmm. I don't have a title on that one either. So I have to go out looking for titles. But I know Backseat Driver was one of them, let's see. Driver. No, Backseat Passenger? Backseat Driver is the, the suspense. Okay. Two twenty two three forty nine. Don't forget the driver. That was funny. <laughs> um, Diane, the truck driver. No. Let me try passenger. I may have mistitled it. Passenger pigeon. Passenger. <laughs> I can burn this passenger pigeon. Well, you might look under the suspense. If you can find the list of shows there, you might find it. <clears throat> I know I set one aside. Crisis, the passenger. That's not it. Passenger. Second class. Second class. Passenger to Pally. Um, gee, willikers. <coughs> I don't think I have my suspense shows loaded. Hold on. Let me see. <coughs> Good. That sounds good. Um, Lux Radio Theater. Shelby leaves town. Favorite the sculptor. Well, this is really terrible because I know. Oh, let me see if I've got them down here. Um, unusual. I want unusual shows. I have, uh, oh, here we go, okay, let's see. Unusual and Little Herd, Jack Benny, Jack Webb, Freeze, Fibber McGee and Molly, Fibber looks happy, that's not it. Um, Aunt Jemima, P. Kelly's Blues, I don't even have it in my special file. Where the heck did I put it? Help me here. Nobody has any suggestions about where I might have put it. I don't have suspense. I'm going to go look at my luck question, because I, I, I know the two luxes, so I'll be right back. I'm going to go over and look okay. at that part of the room. And I think I have some luck as well. Put it in a, you put it in a safe place where you wouldn't lose it. I know. <laughs> I did something with something I brought home from the store the other day. I don't know what I did with it. It's here. I, you know, I set it aside. Fibber's fruit punch, dinner, Fibber takes. That's additional shows. Fibber number one. Judging Fibber, the blowout. Nope, that's not it. Oh, boy, am I. I am feeling so terrible about this. Kill Lee's, Lost World War II. 
non-high quality shows. Nope, those are fibbers. Oh, and I did have them set aside, too. I'll find it. Walden will find it. One of us will find it. Is that what you want? No, that's not what you want. Well, what you like? one day, maybe yes, but that wasn't. Uh, you probably haven't got any of these. Do you have any of the Beulah shows? Yes, I do. Well, I think I'd like to have those. Let me see if I've got them loaded. Now, I know she was a maid on Fever McGee and Molly for a long time, but then uh -huh. had your own show. Yep, she did. Yes, she did, or he did. And it didn't last very long because he died. Oh. I guess I guess it was only a few months. What was it, about four months, Walden? Uh, he didn't until 46, and then... then the the, the Randolph girls took a, took it over and did different runs of it. Uh-huh. And then they did a 15-minute version in the 50s. So they had three or four different people play it. I didn't ever hear that. Yeah. Uh, who was it? Marvin, whoever. Uh, those are the only ones I ever heard. Well, I mean, I, I will go find them. The man that was doing it, that, those are the only ones I ever heard, whatever his yeah. name was. I probably got them on CD and I set them aside. But I have come across them. If I can't, if I don't have them on CD, I can retrieve them because I have come across them. I did no, good. I would like to have those because you really don't hear that very often. No. Yeah, most people only hear it on Fever McGee and Molly occasionally. Uh huh. I don't think I've heard, but very few of the actual Beulah shows themselves. I also have Aunt Jemima. I didn't ever hear those. So, should I pop them on the disc? Be fine. <laughs> okay. I'm hoping that we have one major site that is not accessible any longer unless you pay a hefty fee. And I'm hoping that's not where I saw the Bueller, Bueller shows. Okay, let's see Aunt Jemima. The Aunt Jemima shows um, are almost exclusively advertising, although there is some variety. There's a lot of singing, um, choir and chorus singing, and then the rest of it is advertising Aunt Jemima pancake mix. I, I, yeah, I know when I was a kid, man, there was every kind of Aunt Jemima this and that. You can imagine on the store ship. I mean, we had a bunch of stuff that we sold that was uh, Aunt Jemima and had, had her pick on there with her head tied up in a scarf and all that kind of thing. <laughs> right, and that's the way she appeared on the side of the packages of right. pancakes. Okay. But I and and syrup. I I see that there's Aunt Jemima syrup as yep. well in the grocery store. What other things was uh, was her image on? Uh, the syrup is uh, what I remember. Syrup and the pancake man. Yeah. Okay, I found a lux a family Molly lux that you're not familiar with, Patricia. What? April 8th, 1940. Here we go. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Certain elements just naturally belong together. April and showers, corned beef and cabbage, Fibber McGee and Molly. For several years, the irresistible Mr. McGee and the immovable Molly have been helping make this a more cheerful world. And their weekly broadcast has become a national habit. Tonight, for the first time, they assume the mantle and buskin of the actor in legitimate drama, more or less legitimate, and star for us in the play, 
Mama loves Papa. The combination of Fibber McGee and Molly and the Lux Radio Theater is a brand new one, but as natural as the team of Lux Toilet Soap and a lovely lady. Fibber, Mc... Fibber and Molly are standard entertainment wherever there's a radio in a living room. Lux Toilet Soap is a standard wherever women are interested in how they look, and that, well, covers a lot of ground. The chief problem we faced in arranging this production was persuading Fibber that he was an actor. After a long argument in my office, I finally had to threaten to play the part myself. For the public's sake, he gave in. And after a week's rehearsal, I, I can really salute Fibber and Molly as two great troopers who deserve the stars on their dressing room doors. There's something genuinely American about their humor, something in the grand old tradition of Mark Twain and all those who, who taught us how to laugh at ourselves. Mama Loves Papa takes Fibber and Molly into new territory when Fibber, as Wilbur Todd, quite accidentally, gets involved in politics. As Mrs. Todd, Molly is still his chief counselor and does her part to get him out of trouble after she's gotten him in. Our part at the moment it's to see that the curtain goes up right away on the first act of Mama Loves Papa, starring Fibber McGee as Wilbur Todd and Molly as Jesse Todd. And there you go, Patricia. What is the date on that? The date on that is April 8th, 1940. Hmm. All righty. Don't go away. And then I'll go look for that suspense. Well, I've got the 1940 list in front of me. And tell me the date again. August? No, April. Oh, I'm sorry. Four eight forty. I don't have the they're four one and four twenty nine, but I don't have anything in the middle. Huh? How about that? How about that? Okay. And Lux was uh, you telling me Lux was the show where the backseat passenger or backseat driver? No. No, that was suspense. No, that was suspense. Well, that was suspense. Killing <coughs> me. And, and uh, question where we can go, Patricia? Go to Jerry Hennigan's site. Well, let me let me try. As long as you know when it was. Yeah, it's two two. I've got suspense. Yeah, here. two three forty nine. See, you guys do homework, homework, homework. I tell you why you can't find it. <laughs> See what? I'll tell you why you can't find it. Why? Have you ever heard of alternate universes? Yeah. yeah. And Walden's in my universe, but it didn't happen in yours. <laughs> I believe she's heard of alternate universes. Okay, I believe you. <laughs> Gee, well, I can on page two. And this is 1940 I'm looking for? Oh, you're talking about suspense? Yeah. No, 49. February 3rd, 1949. Okay, my brain is, is just not working with us tonight. You're doing fine. You're doing no, I'm super. not. It's fun when I'm dopey. <laughs> <laughs> Because then things really whoosh. Come, come, come. Come, 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 come. Come, 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 49. Okay, what, what is the date, please? February. So we're at two. Yeah. February 3rd. 
1949. There it is, backseat driver. Uh huh. Okay. Um, we have it. It's down now. Does anybody want it? Nobody wants it. Last call. <laughs> okay, I will find the Beulah show, and if I can, I'll let you know, and uh, we'll find something else. All right. This is good. And I can't figure out what, but um, if you don't find the Buell show, I'll think of something later and we'll do it later. You'll think of something. You come up with interesting assignments as well. You and Fred and Ralph. Uh, you're a pair. Nope, you're a triplet. <laughs> ah, Beulah, here we go. Let me see. 24 episodes of Beulah. We're cool. We're cool. You've got Beulah. 24 episodes of Beulah. <clears throat> That's fine. All right. Did I do good or what? You've done it. Very. Collect I'm collecting my gold stars tonight. It's okay if you tell me I'm wonderful. Well, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Except I didn't know what cowpeas are. P-E-A-S, everybody. <laughs> After I kept saying it out loud, I thought, this doesn't sound right. They, they do not go with cow pies. Mm. They do not go with cow pies, and they do not go with the rest of the stuff either. Right. Can you tell me where the name came from? Don't ask me. I have no idea. Is it a food that you would feed cattle or livestock? Uh, so that, that's, that's what I would think that, um, you know, it's like what I call feed corn. Uh-huh. That was corn back before they had these new sweet corns like the uh, Silver Queen and stuff like that. Uh-huh. There's a lot of others. I think some even have a higher sugar content than Silver Queen, but it was back before they had, you know, um, they're not exactly designer vegetable or designer corns, but, you know, it was the same idea. Mm -hmm. Where they were bred for specific things, and, and corn really... I liked corn, uh, and I liked it then because I didn't know any better. I don't care for it now, um, you know, that type of corn. But uh, I will still eat it, but it doesn't have the sweet taste and all. And I think the cowpeas probably were the same kind of deal because, I mean, you know, we used to feed um, what we call fodder, or fodder, depending right. on where you are. Uh, that was just the stalks and the leaves and all, from, uh, corn stalks and leaves. And I'm sure that people fed pea vines um, the same way. I mean, you fed whatever you had uh -huh. um, to whatever stock you had. And um, Was there enough nourishment in the, I, I guess they're really waste products with the stalks and the vines and things that were left over from the harvest. Was there enough nourishment for the cattle in that? Deal. There's plenty of nourishment there. Of course, they have to graze all the time. I wouldn't say it was a high nourishment thing. But, um, like grains and all would be but um, 
the stalks and leaves and all, it's the same principle. And, you know, we don't want to eat grass. We don't want to eat corn stalks. But mm-hmm. cattle don't mind at all, and uh, they think it's good. Of course, if you ever nibbled on a corn stalk, uh, even the old feed corn, the stalks were sweeter than the corn was. No kidding. Of course you're not kidding. You know this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't say that you want to eat corn stalks. I didn't either, but... Um, you know how kids are. Uh, I have tasted corn stalks. And it's sweet. Uh, just, just out of the field, uh, they were sweeter than the corn was. It's amazing. Why? Well, never mind. How would how would anybody know? Why why would corn stalks retain so much sugar? I don't know if it really retained a bunch, but it was enough you could taste it, or I did. But I have no idea. But you know, like uh, sugar cane, and um, in South Carolina, what they call ribbon cane looked like a, a corn stalk, uh-huh. and I think it was more of a purple color. But now you're talking about sweet. Uh, you could cut off a chunk of that, and uh, you'd usually peel the outer um, hull off of it and uh, eat the core. <clears throat> And that stuff was extremely sweet. But, I mean, it was grown just to make sugar, uh, even the, what they call ribbon cane. Uh, it, I think it was a form of sugar cane, some kind. But it looked like corn stalk to me. It just wasn't green. Carmen, I need to get out more. Yeah, probably. I'm deprived. Yeah, um, I, I think you've come from a less enlightened part of the world. <laughs> it was a survive world. It was a survival time. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe not. That's, that's kind of an exaggeration. Well, I'll try to think of other things in the future, too. Okay, just... Expand your horizons. You, you be kind to me, okay? Absolutely. All right. Thank you. I'll get some Beulah out to you. I do appreciate that. My pleasure. Y'all have a nice week or whatever until we meet again. All right. Okay. Thanks, Harwood. You have a great day and Happy New Year. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are here. Belt buckles. Transmission keys and firearms. What an interesting collection of collections. Howard oh, definitely is eclectic. Yes. He, well, he, his, his he, what's he, around him is eclectic. Yeah, huh? he, he, he knows stuff. Yes, he does. Yeah. Stuff is such a good word. Oh, yeah. He knows stuff. Terrific. He's a great spokesperson for all that stuff. He knows it all and he can explain it all terrifically. No kidding! Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I learn something every time he calls in. I agree. It's an education. Well, I know what cow peas, P E A S, are. It, that's a different than PP. <laughs> that's now Walden. Ah, okay. At a grip here. Ah. I do have I do have one other thing to tell you. One other January first item. What's that, my dear? 
U.S. income tax went into effect on January 1st, 1862. Huh. Never knew that. Well, now you know it. Now it was 3% on income above $600 and 5% on income above $10,000. Now, I have some questions about the following statement, but these are the statements that were attached to that little piece of information. Mm -hmm. It says, the Commissioner of Revenue stated, quote, the people of this country have accepted it with cheerfulness to meet a temporary exigency, I have always have trouble with that, and it has excited no serious complaint in its administration, meaning the introduction of taxes. Yeah. However, <laughs> although the people cheerfully accepted the tax, compliance was not high. <laughs> <laughs> Figures released mm -hmm. after the Civil War indicated that 27,000 I'm sorry, 276,661 people actually filed tax returns in 1870. That was the year of the highest tax returns ever filed. Mm -hmm. And the country's population was approximately 38 million. So there was, there was a little discrepancy. Oh, yeah. I don't know how they tracked that or backtracked to people. Um, I listened to an Amos and Andy show mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, I'll have to go back and look at the date. Oh, wait a minute. I have the date right here. Don't go away. Don't go away. Doo -dee -doo -doo -dee -doo. We are here. I'm here. Patricia's here. Patricia's here. It's got a uh, patooey. Oh, oh, I know it's here. You know what the percentage of the population would pay federal income tax by 1940 was? It's very small. It was. 5%. Wow. Yeah. Well, I suppose if I divvied up the numbers that I just gave you, it would come out to a paltry amount. Yeah. 76000 compared to $38 million. Yep. Well, that'd be $1.9 million would be 5%. So you're looking at way smaller than oh, that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Extra credit. Here we go. Where is the Amos and Andy show? Hmm. Amos and Andy. Amos and Andy. That's Lum and Abner. Okay, it was a 1945 show. Um, April 9th, 1945. Mm -hmm. Andy pays his taxes. And they had 
something in place there. But in the 1800s, how could they track people? How did they know who was earning what? It was an honor system, I guess. Yeah, well, and they probably had people, think about during the revolution, probably people went out to collect the taxes. Maybe they did that during the Civil War time, too. They had actual returns. Hmm, okay. And I guess the honor system. Worth, even at that point, it was a four-page income oh, tax Oh, good grief. Form. Good Can grief. Can you believe it? No, no. I don't know. Walden? You ready? It is time to go. Time to go to bed? It's time to leave. All right, we'll fire up the music. And I get to say good night, everybody. Yep. Happy New Year, and we're so glad we're family. Keeps us out of trouble. <laughs> At least on Saturday night. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Happy New Year. We love you very, very much. Be with us next week, and we'll see what Wong Patricia can come up with. Something a bit. Good night, everybody. Hey, good night, Patricia. Good night, Patricia. Taking them away. It's time to wind up the masquerade. Just make your mind up the piper must. Must be paid. The party's over. The candles flicker and dim. You danced and dreamed through the night. It seemed to be right. Just being with him.
can thrill me Any faraway trip, seagoing ships Not half as thrilling as touching your lips Nothing that can quite fulfill me Any Broadway shows, evening clothes You have more glamour than any of Once I used to dream of Paris in the spring The fun it would be Now I can see That's not for me Nothing in the world excites me Championship fight, not as exciting as holding you tight. Nothing that I do ignites me. And starry skies, fourth of July's, don't have the sparkle I see in your eyes. Don't know what to say, don't mean to be blase, but darling, it's true.
the man who invented love must have been thinking of somebody else couldn't have possibly thought about me The man who invented love Must have been thinking of someone Who should know how to cope with it Someone who would not be a dog Must have been thinking of some other girl. But why can't that girl be me? Oh. 
unexpected lines of beauty aids and a Rexall exclusive. We have Caranome and delightful gift sets for as low as $2. And most of us Rexall...